currently reading a book with a good friend here at the church, and I want to share a portion of it with you this morning. This book, it's a little book. It's called A Small Book About a Big Problem, Meditations on Anger, Patience, and Peace by Ed Welch. This is the first chapter, pages one and two. Why anger, patience, and peace? Anger, of course, is in all of us. To be human is to get angry. Look closely at any day, and we can usually find anger in either actions or attitudes. Just track those pesky inconveniences, those spills, those things misplaced, traffic problems that seem devoted to making your life more difficult, and people, so many people, who are ill-mannered and unhelpful. After a little fuming, cursing, or accusing, most of these nuisances pass and we get on with what's next. Some are more worthy adversaries and disrupt the rest of the day or the rest of our life. Either way, anger is so common, almost ordinary. But to be angry is to destroy. Yet ordinary does not mean innocent in its commonness, we can overlook our anger's volatile and destructive disposition. Everyone has both been destroyed by someone's anger and done some destroying themselves. We are sitting on a bomb, and when it goes off, bad things happen. A father yelled at his 10-year-old son when his son was merely trying to help with some work around the house. Get out. You're messing everything up. When the father looked up at his son, he could tell that his son had lost something, lost security, a young child's enjoyment of his father, a piece of his soul, and the relationship would not be the same for a long time. There can be reconciliation, but anger leaves a mark. Anger is known to take a toll on our bodies. It is not healthy which is one of the reasons we hear so much about finding moments of peace in our disrupted lives. But it is those wounds we inevitably inflict on other people, especially those who are most precious to us, that we are, find reason to spend 50 days with anger, peace, and patience. We could all benefit from the increased skill at grappling with them. And so Ed Welch takes 50 devotionals, 50 days, a page or two, reflections on Anger, peace, and patience. That's what he does in this little book, little book about a big problem. How does anger plague you? How have you hurt others through your anger? And how have you been hurt by someone else's anger? Anger is destructive. And as we continue in our sermon series this morning, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we come to terms with the issue of anger. Jesus hits it head on. The nature of anger, the destruction that it causes, and our desperate need for reconciliation. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 in the Bibles we've provided on your chairs. You can find that on page 810. Page 810. We're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We've entitled that series, The Ways of the King. And so the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, 
deals with the characteristics of the king and his kingdom, what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen and the ways that your, your life should reflect the king that you submit to and follow, the ways of the king. This morning I'm going to read verses 21 through 26. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgments. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. The take-home truth of this sermon is beware the danger of anger and pursue reconciliation with urgency. Beware the danger of anger and pursue reconciliation with urgency. Jesus makes a monumental statement in the passage that comes before the one that I just read. Uh, if you weren't here with us last Sunday, I unpacked Matthew 5, 17 and following. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. And, and by that, Jesus means the entirety of the Old Testament. The, the, the law and the prophets are representative of all of the Hebrew scriptures, all of the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish those scriptures, but to fulfill them. A massive statement that serves as the key to understanding all of your Bible. Jesus is the interpretive center of the entirety of the scriptures, Old and New Testaments alike. And with the Old, he is the ultimate fulfillment. And what that means is he came to clarify for us God's truest intent and application of those scriptures. And so what Jesus does in the six episodes after this fulfillment of the law and the prophets passage, this key to understanding the Bible, he gives us six episodes or six clarifications of what God intended in some, some common Old Testament teachings. And so six times he will say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, What's he doing? He's clarifying and he's showing us the true heart, God's true heart behind these words. The first episode that Jesus addresses is anger. Isn't that interesting? The first episode that he brings up before us is anger. It's strategic because, as Ed Welch says, it's commonplace. It's like the air that we breathe. It's so widespread. Jesus targets a very important place in our hearts. Anger. It's destructive consequences and our desperate need for reconciliation. Two parts, two-prong structure here that's in the main idea. Beware the danger of anger. We see this in verses 21 and 22. 
followed by pursue reconciliation with urgency, verses 23 through 26. Beware the danger of anger and pursue reconciliation with urgency. So first, verses 21 and 22, beware the danger of anger. Jesus says in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So again, this is the first of six clarifications that Jesus makes, Matthew 5, 21 through 48. He's showing us God's true intent behind the Old Testament. And he does this one of two ways, as we will talk for the next six weeks here, by either outright correcting erroneous interpretations of God's word. Notice he says, you have heard that it was said. He doesn't say, you have read that it was written. In other words, it's, the problem is not with the scripture. It's perfect. The problem is with some oral traditions that were extrapolated from the scriptures that some of the Jewish elders had spoken and adopted and passed along. You've heard that it was said. These are the oral traditions that were extrapolated from God's word that were passed on to others. That's what Jesus is, is referring to. So he's either correcting errors of the oral tradition based on the word, or by showing the fullest application of the word. And that's what's at play here in our passage. Notice, he quotes the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. He quotes it perfectly. It's in Exodus 20 and verse 13 and in Deuteronomy 5 verse 17. But he's going to show us the truest application of what that commandment's all about, the true heart behind the commandment. So sometimes in these next six episodes, he's just correcting outright error. But in other cases, he's just showing the fullest application of it. That's what he's doing this morning. Jesus is aiming at something deeper. Is murder merely an action that is conducted? Or is there something dark in the deep recesses behind that action? That's what he's targeting here. He's going deeper to what drives this wicked deed. He targets the heart of the matter, which is the heart. That's where Jesus is aiming, the heart. He says in verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So what lies behind murder? What's at the heart of murder? What disposition deep within drives the action of murder? It's anger, contempt for another human being. Deep disdain for another person created in the image of God. That's what's behind murder. It's anger, contempt, disdain. And anger is destructive. This is where he's going. Anger is destructive. Beware the danger of anger. Notice, if you're, if you're reading the Bible that we've provided on your chairs, or if you have an ESV, there's a little footnote, number two footnote, right by anyone who is angry with his brother, footnote down at the bottom in verse 22, without cause. So some later manuscripts that scribes had copied down and then passed on, some of the later manuscripts have angry with his brother without cause. So what is that scribe trying to do? In his copying, we know this, some of the scribes took some liberties. He's trying to soften 
the punch of Jesus' words by giving the loophole out of justifiable anger, righteous anger. But I believe that, that that's not the original. As we, as we study the, the, the science of how the manuscripts were pa- copied and passed on, there's a rule that says the more difficult reading is the original one. The harder saying, the more difficult, punchy, pithy reading in the manuscripts is the original one because scribes would say, surely God couldn't say that. Surely there must be. And so they would soften it. Jesus doesn't soften it. The earliest and best manuscripts have anyone who's angry with his brother. No loophole given. No qualification to anger, allowing for righteous anger. There, there are t- we'll talk about that. But Jesus wants us to feel the full force of his words here about what's behind murder. Anger. We want to so quickly qualify his statement. What's the loophole? What's the way out? We're squirming under the force of his word. We need to stay there and not look for the loophole. This is not without cause. This is angry with his brother. Well, didn't Jesus get angry? Come on, pastor. I can give you multiple examples. Didn't Jesus get angry? Of course he did. The perfect one got righteously angry. He did. I'll give you a few examples. You can jot down and check these out. Matthew 21, 12. Jesus cleanses the temple. He comes in and he sees a marketplace in the area of the temple reserved for the Gentiles, really the only place they could go to worship, and there's commerce, buying and selling, people making money, people being greedy. He flips over the tables, he drives them out and says, you den of robbers, zeal for my house has consumed me. This place is supposed to be a place of prayer and you've made it a place of commerce. Angry, righteously so. Mark chapter three, verse five, the man with the withered hand. It's on a Sabbath day. A man doesn't have the use of his hand. These were laborers. You can't use your hand. You can't work. You can't work. You can't eat. And they're just watching him. They're just watching him. What will he do on the Sabbath day? Is he going to heal this poor guy? And Jesus looks around at them, the Pharisees and the scribes who stand ready to accuse him. Jesus looks at them with anger, grieved in his heart at their hardness of heart. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and he was healed instantly. He's righteously angry at these legalistic scribes and Pharisees who are unwilling to allow good on the Sabbath day. And then one final one, Matthew 23, the same book that we're in here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 23, 17. Jesus confronts the legalism of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he basically says, you blind fools. He uses the same word that's in this passage here. You blind fools. Brothers and sisters, there is a place of righteous anger. There is cause to burn with anger at sin and injustice in our lives and in the world. Our problem is, more often than not, we are angry over personal offenses, over bruised egos, not at sin and injustice in the world. We need to be honest with ourselves. Don't look for the loophole immediately. He's speaking with force for a purpose. Our anger enslaves us, and it is destructive, and we must come to terms with it. That's what Jesus is seeking to do. Yes, there are places in the Bible that speak of righteous anger. I know that. But what's at play here? What we need to feel is the force of Jesus' words against our own personal unrighteous anger. 
Jesus says in the second half of verse 22, whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus is progressing through the accepted system of justice in his day. If you did something wrong, you went before the council, that is the Sanhedrin, which was the highest court of the Jews, the religious ruler, ruling authority, the council. And then ultimately, if he kept going on and progressed, to, it goes to the, the end game penalty, the hell of fire. Uh, literally there, the Valley of Hinnom, which was the valley south of Jerusalem where they burned trash, constantly dumped trash and burned it. It was always burning. That's the, that's the figure, uh, that's the, the illustration of hell. It's always burning, always burning, a place of eternal anguish. Hell is real. Jesus speaks to it here. It's always burning, just like the Valley of Hinnom, where trash was dumped and burned, perpetual burning. That's the end game, judgment of unrepentant anger. Notice how Jesus focuses on speech here. Our tongues Anyone who insults his brother, anyone who says you fool, is liable to the hell of fire. And the word here, you fool, means empty head. Or we might say, you numbskull, you moron. It's an attack on, on someone's, what's upstairs here, empty headed. That's, that's what he's saying. The point is this, the same heart that leads someone to say, you idiot, you moron, is the same heart that leads someone to murder another. That's the force. It's the darkness of the human heart behind both of those statements. That's the force. It's that serious. So can I ask you some questions? Some questions to consider. Who are you currently speaking negatively of in this stage of your life? Who are you currently speaking negatively of in this stage of your life? Who have you spoken negatively of in the past and you've not turned from that sin? You've not repented of it. You've not confessed it. Whose character have you assaulted in thought or word. Who do you hate? And have you ever wished somebody were dead? Feel the force of these questions because it is the force that's in the passage that Jesus means us to, to feel. The same heart that leads a person to verbally assault another is the heart that drives a person to murder. Can you identify wreckage in your life due to anger? Wreckage that you have caused somebody else or wreckage that somebody else has caused you? How have you been hurt by someone else's anger? Was your father rough with you? Berating to you? Harmful to you? Did your spouse beat you down with their words? Do you have a friend 
that has harmed you with their words, someone who's supposed to love you, a church member, a coach, a trusted teacher? How have you been hurt? Anger is destructive. Who have you hurt? Anger is destructive. If there was such a thing as a word eraser or an action eraser, what is a word in your life that you wish you could just go back and just erase? What's an action in your life that if you had just this miracle to go back and just erase that from your history bank, you would? Can I share one with you? June of 2019, my dad and mom very graciously took our family, so my, I'm one of four kids, myself and three other siblings, their spouses and their kids, on a cruise for my dad's retirement. My dad's retiring. He gifts us. We don't gift him. That's, it was such a sweet thing. So we flew down to Florida, got ready to leave out of Port Canaveral, and it was a, about a 50-minute shuttle ride from the airport in Orlando down to Port Canaveral. And we were in there with all kinds of other sort of contract workers. We're, we're packed into, a, into like this little mini bus. And I have two kids at the time. I have a um, four-year-old daughter and a one-and-a-half-year-old son at the time, Soren, and he, who just was just perpetually difficult, not a good sleeper, not a good napper, just a challenge in every way. And so we get into this little mini bus and um, we're packed in there, and Soren is, he falls asleep, hallelujah, he falls asleep in, in the van, and we're going, and the ride's long, about the first 30 minutes, and then suddenly he, he wakes up. One of the passengers has to get, get up, and so Laura stirs, he, she's holding Soren, he's a year and a half or so, and, and he gets up, and he is screaming out of his mind, and I'm just feeling my blood boiling my blood, you, you know, like you feel every eyeball on you because your kid's crying at a restaurant or in church or in a, in a little sh- minibus. And I'm just bubbling over. And in my sinful heart, I'm, I'm, I'm blaming Laura because he's crying. She can't keep him under control. I'm upset, but I'm upset because my own passions are waging inside me. I'm worried about what other people are thinking about me and my family. And I'm bubbling over with anger against Laura. She can't keep Soren under control. And so finally, we arrive at the place of uh, where we were going to stay. And I'm just, I'm just bubbling over with anger towards my wife. And we get out of the van, and people are there, and I immediately walk over to her. I grab my son, my little son, in anger, out of my wife's hands, and just kind of shoulder her aside. And people were watching me. I make a scene, just a fool of myself. And I look around, and it's in that moment, like you can kind of get outside yourself and look to see what a fool you are in that moment. And I just was, it was like the heap of conviction came upon me. And I just wanted to like crawl inside a hole and not come out. My anger had spilled over and hurt the most precious relationship in my life short of the Lord Jesus, my wife. Because I was angry and worried about what other people were thinking because my son was out of control. And I regret that if I could go back and just erase that, out of my history, I would, but I can't. And I'm not a big journaler, but I spent the next week journaling about that because I just, I try to process what in the world was going on inside me. What was happening? And I wanted to diagnose so that it wouldn't happen again. How have you hurt somebody? 
What would you erase in word or in deed if you could? Anger is destructive. Beware the danger of anger. Second, after unpacking the destruction that anger causes, Jesus points us to a solution. Pursue reconciliation with urgency. Pursue reconciliation with urgency. That's where the text goes next. Verses 23 through 26. Jesus says in verse 23, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Why this illustration of an altar? What is this language all about? What is Jesus referring to here? Making an offering. Friends, this is worship language and worship imagery. You would go to the the temple. You would offer offerings. This is worship imagery. And the heart of worship is the human heart. That's what worship is all about. It's about what's going on inside our hearts, where our heart stands with God and with one another, with God on the vertical level and with one another on the horizontal. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, worship is a sham if your heart isn't right with God and with one another. It's a sham. Don't go through the mechanical motions of just going to church when something's wrong with you and another brother in your church, you and another sister in your church. Don't go through the motions. It's a sham. You're being a hypocrite. In the New Testament, the word hypocrite, which Jesus uses, reserves for the Pharisees and the scribes, means to play the part in a play, to act the part, to masquerade. You're acting like a presenting like a Christian, but deep inside your heart is far from Christ. That's what he's getting at here. Don't masquerade as a true worshiper if a problem exists between you and another Christian. Don't let it go unresolved. Deal with it. Take care of it today. Today is the day of reconciliation. That's what he's saying. There's an urgency. You can feel it in this passage. And by brother... He's using the familial bonds of kingdom citizens. The Sermon on the Mount is targeted at the church as citizens in Jesus' heavenly kingdom. He's speaking of Christians here. And guess what? Issues happen among Christians, brothers and sisters in the faith. It happens. If it didn't happen, we would have no need for the letters of the New Testament. Paul is constantly dealing with issues relationally in local churches. Don't be surprised, but don't. Be ignorant. Don't, don't not take up the tools that you have to deal with those issues. Don't play the part. Don't act. Don't be a sham. Have integrity in your worship. Integrity simply means wholeness. Wholeness. My heart is whole with God. It's whole with one another. What I'm presenting is what's inside. Urgency here. Seek to be reconciled as much as you can control before you come to God in worship, is what he's saying. Check your heart and look within. Where is reconciliation needed between you and a friend in your church? That is the first circle of application, and then we can move out from there. But where is reconciliation needed between you and another brother and sister? 
I, I beg of you as a pastor, based on the authority of God's word, take care of it today. Don't walk out of, this, don't walk out of these doors without obeying your Lord Jesus. I understand it's going to be multiple conversations in most cases. Take care of it today. That's what Jesus is saying. Urgency, urgency. Check your heart. Seek to be reconciled. Maybe you have a Christian friend that you need to have a conversation with. Outside this church, that's an application. Seek to have that conversation. Send a text, set up a meeting, have coffee with them, talk it through. It's not okay to leave it unresolved. It's not okay. There's an urgency here. In your own family, I know this is difficult. He's speaking to Christians. If you have Christians in your family, we're called to reconcile. I understand, again, there's this loophole here. Well, what about, I got conflict with a non-Christian. I get it. They're not adhering to the scripture. There's only so much that you can do. Insofar as you can control, seek to be reconciled to that brother and sister. It'll be a witness to the gospel for you to confess your sin before them, but they may not reciprocate. But Christians, Christians ought to reciprocate. People who bow to the name and the authority of Jesus Christ must reconcile. That's what he's saying here. Be reconciled. Be reconciled. Take the next right step today. Jesus reinforces the urgency of reconciliation with this little picture in 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Again, the context here is the kingdom, kingdom citizens. He's speaking to Christians. So we ought to feel a little bit uncomfortable with this lawsuit thing because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is aghast that Christians are taking each other to court. It's awful. He's like, don't you know that you're going to judge the world one day in the heavenly kingdom? Like, what are you doing suing each other? But, but he's, Jesus is speaking in sort of hyperbole here. Deal with the conflict before it goes long into court and legal matters. Deal with it now. Don't let it go that far. He's speaking with the utmost urgency. That is his point. Be reconciled before it has to go even in consideration of going to court. Be reconciled. Get it right now. There are disastrous consequences when unreconciled conflict continues. That's what happens. He's guys thrown in jail and guess what? In jail, in debtor's prison, you, you can't pay your debt. How are you going to work when you're in, in jail? So you're basically dependent upon loved ones, outside people, friends, family to give you money while you're in debt. It, you're going to be there a long time trying to pay off a debt. You don't want to go there is what Jesus is saying. Take care of it before it goes into the legal system. Be reconciled with your brothers and sisters in the faith. What relationship business do you need to conduct today, this week? Do it. Don't delay. Beware the danger of anger. Pursue reconciliation with urgency. We see in this passage that not being reconciled on the human level leads to disastrous consequences. Well, if that's true on the human level, how much more so if a person is left unreconciled to God? How much more the disaster and the consequences? Friends, our sin is an assault on the holy character of God. Our sin, the Bible says in Isaiah, separates us from God, causes relational 
rifts between us and God. Sin severs relationship with God. And we stand rightly deserving of his displeasure because of our sin. God's wrath against our sin is right. It's, it's good. God wouldn't be good if he didn't have moral opposition against wrongdoing. Our sin places us in desperate need of reconciliation with God. We were once hostile toward him. We need to be brought near and forgiven. We can't reconcile on our own. We are powerless to do that. We need help from the outside, and God has provided it through his son, Jesus Christ. This is the wonderfully good news of the gospel. He's provided us a means of reconciliation as sinners before a holy God. You can be made right with God today. Colossians chapter 1, 21 and 22 speaks gloriously of this reconciliation. Paul says, you once were alienated and hostile in mind towards God, doing evil deeds. Yet Christ has now reconciled in his body, Christ has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Once hostile in mind, now above reproach, blameless before God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is the power for reconciliation. Friend, you can be reconciled to God today if you would trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for your sin, including your anger. Jesus will go on to speak of, of lust and retaliation. And all. Be reconciled to God. Be forgiven of your sin by trusting in Jesus Christ. And from that place of reconciliation, you and I are fully equipped and empowered to reconcile with one another. That's the source, that's the supply of reconciling with other people. The power that reconciles a human being and God on the vertical level is fully sufficient to reconcile on the horizontal level between fellow human beings. We are amply supplied through the riches of Christ to be reconciled to one another. Paul says in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgives you. Brothers and sisters, we don't have any hope of reconciliation and forgiveness among one another in this local church unless we remember how good God is and how much he's forgiven us in our relationship with him. Meditate on that. Remember that. Cling to that. You've been reconcil reconciled with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. From that position, you are now able to reconcile with your brothers and sisters. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy your reconciling power through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on a cross for us, to bear our sin, our anger, our wrongdoing, all of it, and then rising again from the dead, conquering sin and its consequence, death. We thank you for the free gift that we receive by faith. Help us to cling to it. Lord, for some who've not trusted in you as, as Savior, who don't stand reconciled, God, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would work in them, bringing that reconciliation. Lord, for the members of this church who are seeking to follow you, Lord, remind us all of our reconciliation with you 
and let it give us hope and power, perspective, as we seek to deal with our own relational rifts in this church, in our own families, in our own uh, Christian circles. Well, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the ways that you speak to us so that we can be restored. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.